Harris. This is the Heidi Harris Show podcast. I do these a couple of times a week. Subscribe if you would like to anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also find me at HeidiHarris.com and live 7 to 9 p.m. Sunday nights in St. Louis, 97.1 FM Talk. This last week, Dr. Kelly Victory was once again my guest, providing hashtag facts not fear about all things COVID related, including Fauci's inability to answer a simple question about why people who've already had COVID should not get the vax. I get calls all the time. People say, I've already had COVID, I'm protected, and now the study says maybe even more protected than the vaccine alone. Should they also get the vaccine? How do you make the case to them? You know, that's a really good point, Sanjay. I don't have a really firm answer for you on that. That's something that we're going to have to discuss regarding the durability of the response. The one thing the paper from Israel didn't tell you is whether or not as high as the protection is with natural infection, what's the durability compared to the durability Mm. of a vaccine? So it is conceivable that you got infected, you're protected, but you may not be protected for an indefinite period of time. Dr. Victory, thanks for being here again. I so appreciate it. Well, and thanks for having me back, Heidi. Let's start with Dr. Fauci, that clip I played about Dr. Fauci not being able to give an answer about natural immunity. You and I have talked many times. You've been on my podcast. We've done videos together where you've talked about the natural immunity. It makes zero sense to me as a non-doctor that people are totally discounting this. And now Fauci can't even answer the question. There are doctors, as you know, in California who are suing and saying, hold on a second, you're not giving us credit for having natural immunity. You want us to be vaccinated. We've already had COVID. So please address that, doctor. Well, this is absolutely absurd, Heidi. And I think any thinking person knows it. Uh, It defies the science. We have known for decades and decades and decades that natural immunity is very, very powerful. And in fact, up until November of last year, November of 2020, the WHO and NIH defined herd immunity as a combination of two things, those people who have been vaccinated and those people who have had and recovered from the illness. Right. All of a sudden come along this pandemic and they have redefined it only to include those who have been vaccinated. This is absurd and certainly defies the science. Anthony Fauci knows darn well that people who had and recovered from COVID have immunity that is at least as good as those who get the vaccine. And we have a multitude of studies that have backed that up. A huge study done last year by the Cleveland Clinic, over 55,000 individuals in that trial showed that people who had and recovered from COVID had immunity at least as good as they were getting from the vaccine. And we've seen this all over the world. So the idea, and then go back, for example, to folks who had and recovered from SARS-CoV-1 back in 2003, another coronavirus, very, very similar. Those folks still, 18 years later, have immunity to SARS-CoV-1. So we have every reason to believe that people who had and recovered from COVID-19 will have immunity that is broad, robust, and enduring. And for him to, quote, not be able to give an answer as to why they are compelling people who have natural immunity to go ahead and get vaccinated, uh, he, it, it's about time he comes up with a good answer. Because when you start mandating that people do things against their better judgment and against their own free will and against their civil liberties, you better have a darn good answer at the ready. Yeah, it makes no sense. We're speaking with Dr. Kelly Victory. You've talked about this with me in the past, that 
apparently this the people who've already have it like like me the covid recovered as you call them those people have immunity toward the different variants because when the minute you say well i've recovered from covid they'll say yeah but yeah but delta yeah but mu yeah but variants so talk about that doctor how the covid recovered have a broader spectrum of immunity and how the vaccines are targeted to certain uh variants Absolutely. And this is the thing that people need to understand. And first of all, I will say again, as I always say, I am not anti-vaccine, anything but. I've been called a vaccine zealot in the past because I have written and spoken prolifically on the importance of vaccination. I myself have gotten more vaccines than the average individual. Uh, so I'm not anti-vaccine. But the problem is this with the COVID-19 vaccine. They are very, very narrow. They target, I think everybody knows by now, that they cause you to produce a singular spike protein that is found on the outside of COVID-19, on the outside of the original COVID-19, which doesn't even exist anymore. And therefore, you develop these spike proteins and subsequently develop antibodies to those spike proteins, but only to that singular spike protein when you get vaccinated. As Compare that to somebody like yourself, Heidi, who had and recovered from COVID. You developed antibodies to all of the components of the virus, that spike protein, plus a bunch of other things. So the analogy I've used is that when you take a vaccine, you develop this antibodies to this one thing. You recognize the foe as the, the guy wearing the red baseball hat, and you've got antibodies to that red baseball hat. So if that guy comes at you, you're going to say, oh, the red baseball hat, we know him, he's the enemy. When somebody like you, you developed antibodies, not only to the red baseball hat, but you also recognize the hat and the gloves and the shoes and the briefcase and the glasses and the trousers. So that foe would have to change a lot of parts of his appearance for you to not recognize him. He might take off the red baseball hat, but you're still going to recognize all the other parts and say, I know him, he's the enemy. Compare that to the folks who got vaccinated. All that guy has to do is take off that red baseball hat, mutate in one little way on that spike protein, and he's going to slip right by unrecognized. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing that people who are vaccinated are getting sick because all that virus had to do was make a minor mutation. And viruses mutate. We know they do. They all do. And all it has to do is make a minor mutation for those vaccines to fail. And that's why we are calling them leaky, okay? They are failing because the virus can slip by with a minor mutation for those people who are vaccinated where it doesn't happen in that way for people like you who are COVID recovered. It's pretty frightening. We're speaking with Dr. Kelly Vickery. It's pretty frightening the lies and the masterful way that the media has been able to turn this on everybody. You know, for example, you've seen the stories of people who've died from COVID and then they blame unvaccinated people. You were tweeting a story about that just today and a doctor was blaming unvaccinated people. Talk a little bit about that doctor because it, to me it's just masterful messaging from the mainstream media. Well, again, and people need to sit back and think. This story I was tweeting, I find so objectionable. It's an um, a emergency physician in Indiana who is fully vaccinated. He is double vaccinated, yet he apparently went to work in the emergency department where presumably he was also wearing a mask, right. another useless bit of theater. Um, so he, he went to work wearing his mask and apparently contracted COVID. He is now at home 
quarantining in his house, in his basement, symptomatic, by the way. He doesn't feel well. He said he's got what he calls a man cold. So here's a double vaccinated person who contracts COVID, is symptomatic, and he said, I probably got it from an unvaccinated patient. Well, how in the world could you possibly come to that conclusion? You yourself are vaccinated, caught COVID, and are symptomatic. What makes you think you didn't get it from another person just like yourself, right. a patient who's vaccinated who also got COVID? So the idea that they are using this as a divisive agent to pit unvaccinated against the vaccinated is just one more thing that is, it, that is really dividing our society. It's dividing our country. It's incredibly dangerous, Heidi. We already had, you know, years uh, preceding this of white against black, rich against poor, you know, it, Americans versus immigrants. Now we've got vaccinated versus unvaccinated. And the more fractionated we get as a country, the less able we are to actually fight the foe in front of us, which is, which is this virus. And it would be very easy to do it if people would simply stop with the hysteria and the fear mongering. Right. But it is. It's very, very uh, efficient at dividing us further. I mean, racism is so 2019, Dr. Kelly Victory. I mean, that's so 2019. <laughs> We're way past that. We'll fight, fight about vaccinations now. Let's talk a little bit about smallpox, because some people are trying to equate this vaccine to the smallpox vaccine. I did a little research on this. I know nothing. You're the expert here. But apparently the way that smallpox, the, the vaccine was created, there was a guy who had observed that milkmaids apparently got cowpox. And when they got cowpox and survived it, they were not as susceptible to smallpox, which which backs up what we were saying about the fact that it's something that's like obviously different called cowpox versus smallpox. But it backs up what you were saying about the immunity that you have for one thing gives you broad immunity to other things. Can you talk a little bit about that? It, that's exactly right. And it's a, it's a great example. Um, although cowpox and smallpox are not the exact same virus, they have similarities and the milkmaids who had developed antibodies to cowpox, there was enough overlap that when they saw smallpox, they didn't contract it. Their uh -huh. antibodies fought it off successfully. It's also why, um, it, you know, when people talk about milkmaid skin or, or milky skin, it's because as a result of not getting smallpox, they didn't end up with uh, blemished skin. Oh. They didn't end up with the scars on their faces that those who fell prey to smallpox did if they survived it. Um, but there was enough overlap in their immunity, in their antibodies to cowpox, that they were able to successfully fend off smallpox. And that is the case with so many Americans we know have had and recovered from COVID-19. The CDC's multiplier, they estimate right now they're using 5.8 times. They believe that 5.8 times more people have actually had COVID and recovered than were, were registered as positive. So that puts us somewhere in the range of 200 to 240 million Americans already had and recovered from COVID and therefore already have significant immunity. When you add that now on top of those people who have been vaccinated, and there's a significant overlap in those groups, undoubtedly, we should be getting very, very near to herd immunity if these vaccines were actually working. Right. And the problem is, as I said, that the, it was folly to create a vaccine independent of all the issues with messenger RNA, and those are multiple as well, 
But the idea of creating a vaccine to target a singular spike protein in a coronavirus, which of all viruses is known to mutate very, very quickly, the idea of targeting just the red baseball cap was really, really a bad idea, and it was destined to fail. Yeah, we're going to talk, by the way, we're speaking with Dr. Kelly Victor. We're going to talk about a website that you and some doctors have just created. I'm so glad you did about early intervention. We'll get to that. One of the things you talk about is ivermectin. You and I have discussed it many times, and the media, of course, lies. I was just talking to a friend about this this morning, walking my dog. He mentioned ivermectin. I went crazy. I said, he mentioned something about horse medicine. I went, it's not horse medicine. Uh, you know, you have horses. You understand for the hundredth time, please, Dr. Kelly Victor. Victory. Explain ivermectin, the uses for it, and the fact that the doctors can't use it in the hospitals because it's against hospital protocol, quote-unquote. There's now been a, a lawsuit about that. We'll talk about that. But explain ivermectin to those who think it's all about horses. Well, first of all, the entire idea that because you give something to an animal that therefore it's an animal medicine. I, have, you know, I run a menagerie up here at my ranch. I have horses, dogs, and cats. Um, and let me tell you, I give my dogs penicillin. Does that mean that it's a, it's a dog medicine? Right. Uh, and that you shouldn't take penicillin because it's a dog. Why would you take a medicine that's intended for a dog? You know, I give my cats uh, antibiotics, too, that we take as human. You know, does that mean we shouldn't? You know, it's just ridiculous. Ivermectin is, in fact, used in the animal world, not just in horses. We use it in cattle and in, in uh, dogs as well for parasites. It has been FDA-approved for use in human beings, for decades, it won a Nobel Prize for use in human beings decades ago. It is used primarily to treat parasites, worms, as well as lice, scabies. It's also used to treat the skin condition rosacea, which is actually bacterial. Um, and it has, it, we've known that it's useful in many ways. Right now, they're doing trials on it and using it for women with breast cancer. It appears to be a good adjuvant to certain chemotherapy drugs in the treatment of breast cancer. So, yes, this horse dewormer is used in human <laughs> breast cancer. Wow. So uh, the idea, we've known for a long time that ivermectin, although it is used primarily to treat parasites, has very good antiviral properties, okay, by itself. It has antiviral properties, and it's been used multiple times in the past against different viruses, and we found it to be quite effective against, uh, COVID-19, both in prevention of it and in the treatment of it. And when people say, well, yeah, well, where's the large, you know, randomized control trial? We don't have those done yet. But the issue is we've never, ever demanded to have large trials conducted on something to try it as long as we know that the medication is safe. And as I said, it's been FDA approved for decades. It's taken by hundreds of millions of people around the globe annually for everything from, as I said, from, you know, intestinal parasites to scabies and lice and river blindness and rosacea, why in the world would it all of a sudden become unsafe when you go to use it for COVID? Right. I mean, that's ridiculous. So there's no downside to trying it. And that's how we've always practiced in medicine. Upwards of 30% of all medications written, all prescriptions written, are written for something for which they weren't initially intended. And I could give you a thousand examples um, of, you know, anti-seizure medications that are used for chronic pain, blood pressure medications that are used for migraines, all kinds of things. Once a medication is FDA approved for use in humans, that is the stamp that says this drug is felt to be safe and therefore you, a doctor, can prescribe it for any 
indication. When we talk about it's only, quote, approved for you know, scabies or lice, that only, only impacts how the drug manufacturer can market the drug. Has nothing to do how, whether or not I, as a doctor, am allowed to prescribe it. It only impacts the marketing by pharmaceutical companies. Mm, and that's a really important point. We're speaking with Dr. Kelly Victory. Speaking of doctors being able to prescribe anything they want to, you and I have discussed in the past this whole idea of hospital protocols, and they've got to do certain things with COVID patients, and they can't do other things. Now a judge has ruled that an Ohio hospital could not be forced to give a patient ivermectin for COVID-19 because this woman had been begging them to give her husband ivermectin. I have a friend who actually snuck snuck, sneaked, sneaked in some medication to save her father's life because a doctor wouldn't give it to him, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. But this this is a judge ruling that Ohio Hospital cannot be forced to give a patient this at the family's request. Can you please address that, doctor? I, I'll tell you, it is absolutely unprecedented. There are multiple, multiple cases of this around the country, Heidi, and I, too, have multiple examples of people, uh, patients, families who have snuck in on um, either hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin or both to their family's bedside to give it to patients who are hospitalized because of the refusal of the hospital system or the attending physicians to prescribe these things. The idea that we are talking, once again, in the case of both hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, drugs that have been FDA-approved, in the case of hydroxychloroquine, 65 years wow. it's been FDA approved, okay? It is so safe. It's given to pregnant women without any concern. Uh, it's used was developed initially to treat malaria and prevent malaria. Subsequently, it was found out that it actually works against rheumatoid arthritis. Who knew? An anti-malaria that drug that works for arthritis. Then, lo and behold, works against lupus, given to millions of people for lupus, Okay. Now we know that it's also a good antiviral by itself, and it's what we call a zinc ionophore. It helps zinc get into the cells where it can actually kill off the viruses. So we know that hydroxychloroquine, again, so these are safe medications. They're generic, cost pennies a pill, yet you've got hospital systems for reasons that are absolutely inexplicable other than politically motivated, saying, no, you can't give this 12-cent pill to somebody because we haven't done a randomized control trial to show that it's effective. Well, then I would hold them to task and say, you, best, you better not then be prescribing any of the 30% of the other drugs that I was talking about for something for which a large randomized control trial hasn't been done. And you would actually get them quaking in their boots because they absolutely do that. They do that on a daily basis. So why is there this hit job on hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin? And now, fast forward to monoclonal antibodies, Heidi. You know, we've, we talked about this previously, that the monoclonal antibodies, uh, Regeneron, uh, is known to be very, very effective against uh, COVID-19. They were being wildly underutilized, and a lot of doctors weren't using the monoclonals, and a lot of patients didn't know they were available. So lo and behold... States started requesting, so we have a huge supply of them, and for reasons, again, unclear, the Biden administration cut by 50% the amount of monoclonal antibody uh, supplies that they were willing to send to places like Florida and Texas. All of a sudden are being limited wow. in what the supply they can get. 
So why is it that each time we, meaning physicians, treating physicians, identify a safe, readily accessible, inexpensive medication that works against this virus, the authorities make it unavailable to us? Why is that? Dr. Victory, there are some people who say that 85% of people who died from COVID have died un unnecessarily because they weren't necessarily given early intervention. Everybody waits till they're very, very, very sick. Then they go in, then they get on a ventilator. Uh, real quick aside, my mom years ago was diagnosed with a bunch of things, H1N1, a bunch of things hit her at once. She wound up on a ventilator for a few days, and then the doctor came in. You know how they change doctors at the hospital? The second doctor came in, second pulmonologist said, no, we've got to get her off the ventilator. You know, tough love. She's got to get off this thing after only a few days, which when you hear about these stories of people who are on a ventilator for weeks and weeks, I mean, we used to not hear about this with anybody expecting a decent outcome, right? Yeah, I, I have never in my entire tenure as a physician or certainly my career in medicine and in public health have never seen this sort of approach to an infectious disease. The idea that people go to the hospital, get diagnosed with COVID, and are told to go home, take aspirin or, or Tylenol, uh, and, and come back when you get really sick. What That is no way to treat any infectious disease. I don't care if you're talking about pneumonia, meningitis, strep throat. You know, there's never a benefit to sitting and waiting. I mean, it's like walking out into your kitchen, seeing smoke coming from the toaster, and saying, well, I'll go to bed, and if I wake up in the morning and the kitchen's on fire, I guess I'll, I'll do something about it. Um, that's ridiculous. Uh, nothing benefits from that approach. Uh, yes, Dr. Zev Zelenko, one of my colleagues on the new website, and, and by the way, lest I forget, the new website is called earlycovidcare.org, earlycovidcare.org. It is a site intended to, is not an anti-vaccine site in any way. It's a pro-early treatment site. It has resources for clinicians who might not be up to speed on all the protocols uh, and how to actually treat COVID patients. There are huge resources for patients. Uh, a way to find a doctor in your area to treat. There's a rich, rich library of resources, of articles, of studies, of the actual data to support what we are suggesting for this multi-drug cocktail. Uh, experts on the site, in, in, including myself, include people like Dr. Zev Zelenko, Peter McCullough, Harvey Reich, Brian Tyson, uh, George Fareed, some folks who have really been out there and outspoken about this. Uh, Zev Zelenko is the one who first came out and said, and I, I happen to agree with him, that probably 85% plus of the, the deaths from COVID could have been avoided had we actually made hydroxychloroquine and subsequently ivermectin available to those people early on in the course. Uh, the studies that showed that those drugs didn't work have been because people are on literally their deathbeds. They're in the ICU or on a ventilator and some Hail Mary pass, somebody gives them a dose of ivermectin and can't turn them around from the grips of death and then says, see, it doesn't work. Well, you know, I, I would submit to you that there comes a point, particularly in that cytokine storm or once the lungs are filled up with blood clots uh, and fluid, that no drug at that point is going to turn someone around. That is very different from treating people early on when they first test positive and first have signs and symptoms of COVID. 
at that point, there are many, many drugs that we have in our, in our quiver and a great way to treat people and keep them from ever being hospitalized at all let alone in the ICU or on a ventilator. Yeah, and, and, you know, the ventilator, the idea that you're on a ventilator for weeks and weeks, I mean, every day that you're on a ventilator, I'm not a doctor, but I talked to the pulmonologist when my mom was sick, and, you know, it makes sense that every day that you're on it, it's, it's a longer recovery, you risk infections, and yet that's their go-to treatment. It, it, exactly. It's, I've never seen it before, uh, and it was, it was unnecessary to get to this point. Again, I'm not anti-vaccine. There are people for whom the vaccines uh, may make sense. It's a risk-benefit calculation. Um, if my parents uh, were still living uh, and were elderly in a nursing home, or uh, I would probably suggest that they do go ahead and get the vaccine because although the vaccines have significant risks to them and are uh, unfortunately not well tested yet, because they haven't been around long enough to be tested. Uh, anybody who says that they are, you know, quote, completely safe, I would say, great, show me the 24, 36, and 48-month data uh, on them. And obviously you can't because they didn't exist 12 months ago. Right. So, uh, but I would tell, you know, an elderly person or even my own parents or family members, uh, if they were living, I'd say, yes, it's worth the risk because should you contract COVID, you have probably a 4 or 5% chance of dying from it. Uh, as opposed to healthy people under the age of 50 who have a risk of, you know, 0.02% right. uh, of dying. So it's a risk-benefit calculation. And I think that these medications that we're talking about, early treatment regimens, uh, are very safe. They're readily available if it weren't for the politics around them and the fact that uh, pharmacists and hospital systems have been empowered by the federal government to prohibit or make it very, very difficult for treating physicians to get a hold of these things. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's unconscionable. That's true. We're speaking with Dr. Kelly Victory. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. Talk to me about the boosters. Apparently the FDA is discussing those this week. W what do you think? Uh, you know, booster four, three, four, five, six. I mean, how far do we go, doctor? Talk about, you know, the, something that hasn't been tested. Uh, it would be those boosters. We've got about five minutes worth of data on them. Um, which I don't believe is adequate to determine whether or not they're safe. We don't even know if they're necessary at this point. I, the studies simply have not been conducted. Do I think that the FDA will approve the booster? I suspect that they will. Uh, you may recall that President Biden already you know, put the cart before the horse and announced that boosters were going to be available to anybody starting September 20th. Remember, he said that yep. to anybody who had their... Uh, completed their first course of the vaccines eight months ago. So there are people who are anticipating, expecting that they're going to start getting these boosters any day now. Um, so I suspect the FDA will approve it. Um, I think it's a bad decision. Um, I respect anyone's choice to go ahead and get vaccinated. It's a personal choice, hopefully one that is done not under coercion or threat uh, of some sort of reprisal. If they don't do it, I hope people do it thoughtfully and take into account their own true, not fearful, but true risk from the infection should they get ill and weigh that against the potential risks and benefits of the vaccine. As I've explained, these vaccines, unfortunately, are not nearly as effective as we were told they would be. They are far too narrow in their scope. Uh, and many mutations are going to slip by them. They may give you some element of protection or decrease your risk of serious illness, 
they aren't designed to actually kill the virus. They're only designed to decrease the severity of your symptoms. So that's the most you can hope for. Um, but the idea that lining up, I guarantee uh, if you start down the booster route, I don't have any reason to think that one booster is going to be in, in Israel. They're already talking about, you know, boosters four, five, and six. So, um, and Anthony Fauci said some days ago that he thought it was reasonable that you might need a booster every five months. <laughs> well, I think that's absolutely, can you even, uh, seriously. No, I, I mean, can't. We just, we, we've left the reservation now. I can't even um, imagine yeah. that. No, no. I mean, this is so far beyond the pale uh, that I think that most Americans are, are simply tuning it out. Uh, I think we need to focus on prevention. Uh, we need to focus on those things that we know would wildly decrease people's risk of ever getting COVID in the first place. Things like getting your vitamin D levels into the desired range, losing weight. You know, other than, Heidi, other than age, other than age over 75 years old, which unfortunately you can't do anything about, much to my dismay, you can't roll that time <laughs> clock half. Wish that I could. Um, but other than that, the, the most significant risk factor for COVID, for contracting it and getting a bad outcome, is obesity. Yet have you heard one public health official, no. anybody at the level of an Anthony Fauci or Rochelle Walensky, taught, say, look, we're 20 months into this. You know, you can't roll the time clock back and get younger, but the thing you could do something about, if you weren't motivated before, lose that last 25 pounds That's or 50 exactly. pounds or whatever it yeah. is. So we should be focusing on prevention. We should be focusing on early treatment, and we should be rallying around and protecting that relatively small group of people who are actually at significant risk of bad infection. That's what public health should be about not foisting vaccines on millions of people who already had and recovered from the virus, not limiting people's access to medications that are safe and effective, and not shaming people who are making decisions based on their knowledge of their own personal health history. Couldn't have said it better. Dr. Kelly Victory, always a privilege to talk to you. Find her on Twitter at Dr. Kelly Victory. She's president of Victory Health, and it's hashtag facts, not fear, and you're always great at providing it. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Heidi. Let's Thank do it again soon. Always great to have her expertise. Don't forget to check out the website, earlycovidcare.org. I'm glad she and a bunch of other doctors created this. They're just trying to help, and they've got some videos and a lot of information up there. Check it out, earlycovidcare.org. I'm Heidi Harris. Don't forget, check out HeidiHarris.com. And catch me Sunday night, 7 to 9 p.m. on 97.1 FM Talk in St. Louis. That's 7 to 9 p.m. St. Louis time, 5 to 7 Pacific if you're still in the Vegas area, which is obviously where I'm from originally. Until we meet again, remember, you were created for a purpose. Here's Tony Scottwell.